0: Hi, and welcome to season two of the Early Years Conversations podcast with me, Kerry Payne and Kate Moxley. This is a safe space conversations podcast for the early years sector where we discuss key topics and experiences. We want to amplify the voices within our sector and, and tackle some of the tricky aspects of our work with children and families. Please note that this podcast includes discussions around mental health, race gender, sexuality, neurodiversity, adversity and of course we'll be covering all those joyous aspects too.
1: So today we are going to be talking about compassion fatigue and um, we're really excited to be recording this podcast conversation. We've had lots of responses and lots of interactions across social media when we have put this topic um, to you. So Kerry, you know, before we get started, you know, what is compassion fatigue? How would you describe it? What does it mean for you?
0: So, compassion fatigue is actually something that arises from the experience of burnout. And I think as educators, we've all probably heard that term, and we've probably all experienced it, experienced it at some point. Um, and it, it's essentially um, a, a reaction, burnout is a reaction to stress. And where that then transitions into compassion fatigue is when we are exposed in a prolonged way to stress, to adversity, to challenge. And it's also matched to an inability to find time or to have space to actually to be able to regulate that stress, to um, find strategies to um, resolve that stress. So you are, it's almost like imagining that you're in a constant state of fight or flight or fright. So you're constantly hypervigilant. And what we know about early education and working with young children is that you're often working with such a diverse group of children. You're often required to be in ratios for long periods of time, working long hours. Um, And so that constant exposure to not only your own stressful experiences, but the stressful experiences of other children, of your colleagues, and almost not having that outlet leads to this concept known as compassion fatigue. Now, the reason it's called compassion fatigue is because If you're not able to care for yourself or you're not able to access those strategies of self-care, and we're not talking about the cliched aspects of self-care, it's not about, you know, simply lighting candles and, you know, having a chill. It's about having real sustainable strategies. If you don't have that outlet, which we know educators don't always have, that ability to care becomes impeded, so um, you kind of it, it really does feel like you're running out of the the energy. Like I've got nothing left in my own cup. How can I, you know, pour into other people's cups and give them sense of well-being? And I think why we feel that it's such an important topic for us to talk about is that it, it it's a thing within our sector. And I think what we have found that when we when we shared this on social media. So many people reached out to us and said, Burnout, totally know what that is. I didn't realize that compassion fatigue was a thing and that it was something that was acknowledged. And I think that there's a lot of shame around it. So, a number of questions came up, Kate, that I thought we could work through today. And this might, you know, this might end up being part of a series of episodes because the amount of messages where people actually were like oh my gosh that's what it is so one of the first questions that we got or that the kind of theme of questions was have either of you um suffered or experienced um burnout or compassion fatigue and how did you deal with it or either did you not deal with it so what what do you think Kate is that something that you've had um yeah absolutely I think when I look back
1: on my career working with um children and families um absolutely it's something I feel that I experienced um, and I think that for, for me it was something that happened in perhaps stages so you know I've talked quite openly honestly about the fact that obviously I experienced stress and on that classic example of how eventually that stress led to high functioning anxiety and eventually to depression but I think Prior to that happening, those warning signs were there and I was just pushing down. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, you know, one of the things, you know, when you start exploring about compassion fatigue, especially in early years, caregivers, is this, um, you know... There's lots of talk about, obviously, trauma and working, you know, maybe with children who may have experienced trauma themselves. But what we're going through with COVID and a pandemic is extremely traumatic. Um, So not only are we having to put ourselves in situations that aren't safe, um, you know, what has compounded it and added to it is the way that we thought about in the sector as well. So all of those kind of things are going on. But I think for me, taking back to what was happening for me was, Um, I wasn't in touch or understood about my own emotional intelligence, if you like. So we'll talk a lot now about being an empath and being a sensitive person. But you know, when I grew up, being sensitive was something that was viewed quite negatively and it was something that I didn't want to associate with myself so like my dad when he met my husband for example I think he told him that I was quite a sensitive person and I can remember being quite outraged like what do you mean sensitive person I'm not sensitive but actually what uh, what happened for me was I had to identify that I am an empath and as an empath I absorb lots of other people's feelings all the time and I think as caregivers we're taking on not only how the children feel but how the families feel how the people feel in our rooms our line managers the people who are you know you know we're reporting to so all of these different things are happening and you're not in tune with yourself and how you feel so often we we just put the lid down on our own emotions and how we think and feel about stuff we've never been taught Um, I was never taught to really be in tune with how I was feeling about stuff so I think burnout started showing up for me and I mean you know I I always make things to laugh about but you know coming home from work and snapping the head off my own child my own daughter and my own husband so be like Mary Poppins all day like la 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 I'm having a wonderful day I look after all of the children and everything is so wonderful and then I'd come home and like someone would ask me something because I said so because I've got nothing left to give and I'd turn into some kind of irritable um highly kind of anxious angry person I could be moment like away from, like so close to tears so someone could say something and I would be you know I, I would be feeling so um so upset about something, I burst into tears, not sleeping, um, you know, feeling really exhausted, just not properly taking care of myself. And that kind of, the, the, that when I look back now, that sensation, it makes my body feel panicky and hot. I can feel chest pain, I can feel tension in my neck. I used to suffer with really bad migraines. So now I look back and see. I was going through this this burnout and all of these things for so many years before I just feel like I collapsed under the weight of it
0: all. Yeah, that sounds really hard. And I think the thing that you've like kind of touched upon there are two critical skills to working with young children is having sensitivity so that you can be responsive to young children um, and being an empath. So really wanting to feel alongside your children and families, because if we don't have that, with not then able to really truly understand and to provide that high quality care given, um, and so it's almost as though the things that are very critical almost then attack us or work against us, which can be be really difficult. And I think my situation is potentially slightly different from yours in that my compassion fatigue and my burnout. And I think that this is something that I think that we need to acknowledge more as a sector is when you're not able to manage that stress in the moment. So there have been studies that have looked at um, teachers and educators that when they do experience that kind of increase in stress within the early childhood environment, if they can't because it like my thing is I need to escape when I'm stressed. If you're in ratio, there is nowhere to go. So it's how hard educators are having to work to manage manage themselves trying to keep that stress so like some of the examples there that you know for you it's when you got home I think for some educators, it's so hard to manage that in the moment and I think for me, one of the reasons I struggled as a practitioner, you know, I was a good practitioner, I cared, I was passionate, but it came in base. So I'd either be very joyous and very happy, but then if the stress kind of got too much, trying to contain that in the early childhood environment was very difficult. And so I think that that does then have an impact on the caregiving, it does impact on how we we support and look after children. And I think my compassion fatigue, um, that when I've experienced it, it it emerged from that kind of secondary trauma. So um, according to the research, when you are working with children who themselves have their own, you know, um, rich and diverse experiences, but some of that results from adversity. So if you're looking after children that are on child protection plans that have complex um, needs or have illness, um you know don't necessarily come from you know the kind of best background so they might come from under-resourced communities or face social deprivation so when you're looking after children you're almost their vulnerability you almost take that vulnerability on and you do want to make a difference. And you kind of, I remember speaking to a practitioner on a mental health training course and she was saying, you know, when I walk out at the end of the day, those children don't leave my head. They're with me when I go to sleep. They're with me when I wake up in the morning, you're thinking about those children all the time. And so for me, um, my the kind of turning point in my career is I actually um, looked after a term in the ill child. We we kept her in the nursery until until um, the very end, really. And um, so we spoke to the parents and we said, you know, we really want you to, to keep this child in the nursery because that's her normality. And I think over that time, me and my colleague who were one to one in this child, we did not understand what was happening to our systems the secondary trauma of losing a child and this is it's something i'm really passionate about is that i think in the early education sector nobody talks about the impact of looking after children that face these experiences and how much that kind of really and i'm going to use the word it damages you over the long term and i remember when that experience happened it took me seven years to realize i was going through grief, I was experiencing full throttle grief, and I didn't have anyone to speak to, because what we were told is, the child is terminal, but you leave your baggage at the door, this is worse for the parents and the child themselves, you've got a job to do, you need to come in and do it, and there's no allowance to go, oh, we love the children we care for, and so I, it broke me, to be honest, so I would say I didn't deal with it, I actually left the nursery and moved to London (laughs) to escape the grief, so... Do you know, Kerry, listening to you
1: talk through that, again, it it makes me think of how much as practitioners we don't let ourselves process or deal with, as I said, like, we just push it down. So I'm listening to you describe that situation, and my first response is, that sounds so difficult, like how you must have, um, you know, worked through that and lived and experienced that. And then the other part of me then reminded me of actually all of the children and families that I've worked with that haven't experienced um you know um, a child in my care passing away and having to care for them and wanting to provide those you know that that amazing opportunity for them to give them that quality of life as much as possible Mm. however I it's made me think of children who are you know who have been under um, child protection services children who have really complex health um, and medical needs Um, you know how many times I've supported staff who we've had like the community nurse come in to be able to support and feed children through Um, I can't remember the word now Um, what's what I can't remember the word but anyway really complex medical needs children on child protection registers children with like SEN children and you know the biggest thing we were constantly trying to do is on top of our day job like when you start actually speaking and unraveling the role of a caregiver we know just how complex it is and we wear so many different hats but we just do it don't we without really taking a moment and I feel like you just describing that has made me just sit there and think like we what we try to do is fix everyone you know I say it a lot we do try to fix provide solutions not just for children on a day-to-day level but for parents for families for local authorities for social workers for all of the different people that we come into contact with and just to take that moment there to just realise like, wow, there is no job really in the world like it and no wonder. And so you know whilst we were like researching thinking about this podcast you know uh, one of the things I read um, and we're going to put together lots of reading and further links for people and um, but one of the things I read was you know we always talk about increasing like teaching and learning and the quality for children but we don't talk about our own mental health when do we ever talk about increasing the conversations around our mental health and I think you know, just this opportunity and just that reaction from people around what compassion fatigue is, I would say it it would almost be impossible for you to have worked in early years, um, you know, for a period of years and not experience this in in one way or another.
0: And that's a really good point. So in the situation that I went through, which was life changing, to be honest, and I remember, so I I don't often speak about it, because I can't but um, I remember delivering some training, and somebody saying, "You know, oh, why did you become a senko, or why did that become your area of passion?" So I, I mentioned this child, and you know, and you go, "Oh, not ready to go there." But I, I kind of said it was it was emerged from a really difficult experience, and where I kind of realised that that's where I was I was best equipped, but I knew I knew that the kind of toll it also took, but I was also very invested in it. But what happened that day with this group of Senkos is that every single one of them had their own story. So it wasn't like, a, oh, I, you know, I'm the one who looked after a term in the ill child. It was every single person in that room told a story that highlighted um, the realities of our sector. And I think there is some shame. And I don't know where it comes from. I don't know how to word it. There comes something, and it might, I don't know how to articulate this, Kate. So you might need to help me. We have a job to do. Difficulty is part and parcel of that job. We are there to make a difference. We should be there to improve children's outcomes. We should not be intrinsically motivated too much or view ourselves as the saviour within that situation because that can be harmful. But at the same time, where do we have a space to go and go seeing that happen to a child or knowing that a child's going through that or trying to make a difference to a child's life? It Like, it, it's... It, it emerges so many complicated feelings within the individual as well. And then when you're doing that over a long period of time and coming back to the compassion fatigue, when you're doing that over a long period of time and there is no way, because you've hit the nail on the head, there is no way to process the realities of our sector. Because nobody told me that when I started, when my mum said to me, get up to the nursery, you're helping out. I honestly was like, Hanging around the kids, they're playing. You just kind of set up a water tray. It's all fun and games, and it's birthday parties. You get cake, loads of time. You know, this was years ago when you could have cake um, at birthday parties, and it was all the kind of fun things. And I don't think, I don't think enough people talk about the the complexities behind that. And I think the reason that it does differ from wider education, which I know wider education also has difficulties with this issue. But we do not get the training. You do not sit and get um, training in this area, so you're kind of almost going in a little bit ill-equipped, um, and it's almost like you're kind of dodging that that existence of compassion fatigue. So I think it's really hard. And I think when I list the re- when I read the list of symptoms and signs, um, it really really shocked me. So I'm going to read a couple of the kind of. Um, warning signs it's described in this book that i've been reading but i think every practitioner will will hear this list and and it will resonate so let me know kate if these are things that resonate with you um, feeling helpless and hopeless have you felt that yeah yeah yeah, I think so. So often, and sometimes we feel helpless and hopeless. Not even not even as the result of an individual child or a situation, but because of the nature of the sector. So we are, we are underfunded. We are we are tight on resources, time, and capacity. So often, and and this is something that I've picked up. I don't know if you found this when you speak to practitioners, and they get really hopeless. Because they're often being told what they should be doing and what they should be striving for, and how they should be professionally developing, and how they should be a better version of themselves. Early educators are constantly told, "You are not good enough. You need to be better." Um, and they're often trying to do that in a very contained set of circumstances. Would you agree? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've spoken
1: before. You know, some of the work that I've done. Um, you know, certainly around mental health and well-being. Um, you know. I think that the self-esteem of the sector in general is very low. And I think what you've just described, if you're, you know, we we never get to a point where we can sit back and have a breather and be like, oh, I've done everything now, give myself a pat on the back. Um, And unfortunately, I think because of the way that we're regulated, and um, it's, it's a deficit model of setting ourselves up to fail. It's, we always focus on what we're not doing. And actually, you know, part of moving forward is, well actually, what are we really good at as a team? But individually, what am I good at? What are my skills and strengths? And having worked with practitioners who have been close to or in tears because they can't tell me one good thing about themselves about their characteristics as an early years practitioner when they might have been working with children for 20 odd years and trying to ask someone what's one good thing about yourself that we can't underestimate actually if you have never been in a space where someone's encouraging you to think positively about yourself then it's hard to have that moment where I can't tell you one thing but yet I'm working myself into the ground for this role and I think especially at the moment with what's happened with The government and why things have been handled with coronavirus. This feeling of hopelessness and helplessness has been exacerbated because we seem like we feel like we've forgotten about. We're not talked about our guidance, the, the funding, all the different things are happening. All of these are just compounding what is happening. And so, you know,
0: how can we move? Move forward with that, but I mean that was just one thing. So what else have you got on that list? Yeah, the list is quite. This is why I said earlier on, this is going to be more than one episode, I think, because you know, and I think what we must say at this point, because I know we're we're talking about the dark side of the sector, aren't we? We're talking about the difficult side of the sector, and there is hope within that because I think a we there is hope in the collective experience of it and finding ways to to create new policies and new systems for supporting the early years, which you know we can all hope, but. I think something that you pointed out there about the the feeling hopeless. And and I, isn't it like so weird how many practitioners you speak to and they can't say something good about themselves. And I, uh, you know, supported settings for years and I would go in and and a similar situation where they wouldn't be able to identify a good thing about themselves. or when, when they were receiving feedback, it was always with a condition. So I really made a point when I was a consultant, and I don't know if I got it right all the time, but some days I would go into a setting and I'd be like, I'm not even going to talk about what next or how to improve, or you, you're good at this, but it was, do you know what? You are working your backside off. You are passionate and committed. Just take that for today. Like, I think there's not enough of, we need to get rid of the butt sometimes and actually just say, um you're good, like, you know, because how many practitioners do you meet and, and actually go, wow, they really are just committed and surviving and amid some of the challenges. So, um, and I think that links into another thing is another sign or warning of, of compassion fatigue is having that sense that you can never do enough. And we do exist within a sector. And I think the education sector included just you can never do it. There's always something or something's always coming from an at one angle. One of the things I did wanna speak about, because again, we're thinking about practitioners within the room is feeling hypervigilant. And I think the reason that this is an important warning sign is lots of studies have shown that stress is contagious. So if you are experiencing stress, it is likely that that can be a, a contagious experience. Um, and you do see this in practice, so you can walk into a room and it's either coming from the member of staff and then they make the entire environment feel quite hostile or you've got children that are feeling stressed or it's a combination of both. Um, but what that creates, again, it's not about shaming the member of staff or the children for feeling stress, it's about being responsive and it's about developing it's about developing sustainable strategies for reducing hypervigilance and so a lot of the work that I do with young children focuses on right let's look at the environment what lighting have you got on have you got windows open for fresh air Um, have you removed any stimuli or any noise and distractions have you got any tight clothing do you need to cool down do you need to do some movement and I think those things can feel arbitrary and feel a little bit tokenistic but it's the what can you do in the moment to try and reduce that stress and reduce the contagious aspect and um, so I don't know if you felt that kind of hyper vigilance before when you were a practitioner yeah absolutely but I think what I was when I was listening to you
1: you speak there what I was thinking about was we're thinking about practitioners in the room but also uh, managers and leaders and management styles and that self-awareness because clearly you know, when you are working as a leader and manager and the role that you are doing, you are you are trying, you know, 99% of the workforce are basically trying their best. They want to do their best. And I know for me, what happened was I started to resent people. I, I, we talked before a little bit about expecting you from other people, but I definitely started to be in this cycle that part of my burnout and my stress was, taking everything personally. So someone that found him sick or someone that didn't finish that display or someone that hadn't prepared for a meeting or someone that hadn't done all of these different things. And I think, again, it comes back to, Um, You know, what have we cultivated within our our settings? So something I've talked about before, I think, I'm not sure in the podcast, but about like culture, cultures of paranoia. I worked in a, a setting where I was, my line manager operated a culture of paranoia because they weren't able to directly say if they were unhappy about a certain element of practice. It would be shared, for example, in a whole staff meeting in front of like 40 odd people rather than sitting down and having that conversation and so what happened was it created this culture of paranoia where so many of us were like oh clearly she's not happy about something now is it me is it that person and we all felt like we were walking on eggshells so you know if learning walks happened or like you just said people come into the room and look at practice we were all like oh, like should we be doing this now should we be standing here what should be going on and so we were constantly operating in this kind of level of stress and I think you know, the problem this comes back to is not because managers are horrible people, <laughs> not because they're not very good at their job. It's because we've probably had very little training as leaders and managers mm-hmm. around how to manage people or also like what is my style of leadership and management? And also like, so no, like as we've talked about, what am I really, really good at here? But also, what do I struggle with? Do I struggle having conversations with people and holding them accountable if they're late like you know a few minutes late every day and I don't say anything because I don't know how to say it and then I don't say anything and then they're late when Ofsted turn up and I'll rip them to pieces like who's up, who's at fault there the staff member or the manager or it's, it's like vicious cycle and so you know having that breather to stand back and just be like okay like you've just described what do I need in my environment like it comes from my leadership style and my manager but like how does it feel when I show up because I think as early as practitioners remember when you'd walk through the door say you're on the later shift and you would know the moment you walk through the door what the day was going to be like you could feel it couldn't you the, 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 the noise the children the temperature in the room like it, straight away you were like whoa what has gone on in here this morning <laughs> before I've even got here it's like 9.03 and
0: today looks like it's going to be a wild one <laughs> And I think being able to say as well, actually, because often I think practitioners can worry that they're burdening their managers if they are honest about their stress levels or their inability to self-regulate. But what I've learned over time is by not sharing those boundaries of your own like stress or your inability to self-regulate, like you're not only punishing yourself, but then you do leads to punishing the children and the other staff. And so what I've learned to do, because obviously I now work with big kids, I work with university students, but with my manager and with my, my leaders, learned to say if you put this into place for me then that will help me to regulate but it will also make the working environment easier so it's understanding that helping someone's stress isn't just helping the individual it's helping a collective organization and i know when i worked in a nursery my sister was my manager it was a great manager but not very tolerant of stress and it was you. You're then trying to contain and hide your stress because you're like, oh, I don't want to get into trouble. I don't want to get into trouble. Um, and then you just you're just holding onto this big ball of hypervigilance, of anxiety. Um, and and the only people that are going to be at the receiving end of that are the inner, you know, the inner voice and the inner turmoil. But then also snapping at others. And I know, I definitely as a practitioner had moments where I looked at children and I thought. I can't contain my stress, so I cannot tolerate you. And it's such a shameful feeling when you dislike your children as a result of not being able to regulate. But we have to, we have to, have to have an open conversation about that and say you're not always going to be your best self when you're working with children. But we need to have systems in place to make sure the children are safe, that you're safe, and that the culture and the organisation is acknowledges the reality of that because I think that we've forever existed in a sector that hides that we are human and that we sometimes have very not pleasant feelings and thoughts about children or we might snap or we might feel a particular way it's only once we bring that to the surface that we can resolve it by by having this shame culture of our practitioners it, it does it doesn't help and that again is another um, set of symptoms as related to compassion fatigue is that guilt that fear and that anger, Um, and you do, you see it in practitioners, they, you know, I've seen practitioners go, oh, well, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really react well in that situation, or I didn't really like that group of children or that child, and it's like, okay, well, let's work out why that happened, and more often than not, it's not actually about the children, it is about, I've not had an opportunity to resolve the stress.
1: I think it's really interesting hearing you have that conversation and I think for lots of people it might be uncomfortable to admit that so you know I come from a place where I say, I think as adults it comes back to that empathy, we have so much more empathy and compassion for the children, but yet less so for ourselves, so like you know when do we stop having compassion and empathy for one another? What age does it get to? So like when they're little, we want to support them. We want to do everything for them. But hold on, now you're an adult. I don't care about how you feel. Like I'm not bothered if you you feel this, this kind of way. But also, you know, we have to be honest, don't we? There will be times where we've got, we haven't got we have got it right. I mean, you know, sometimes we talk about you now visited settings and they haven't been outside all week, haven't been in the garden. And yet we would think that in the world that we live in at the moment, of course, everyone goes outside all day. Surely you've got free flow. Why haven't you got a forest school now built in your garden? Well, actually, you know, for those practitioners who, hands on their heart, don't enjoy going outside or don't want to be outside and, you know, or is it just as you've as we're talking about, we're just so worn out and depleted, haven't got the energy today to withstand that. Um, you know, I've talked before about being like um the fun police, like when you're outside in the garden, like you patrolling for anything that's about to happen because you're worried there's going to be an injury and again that comes back from potentially seeing a horrific injury happen while children have been in your care so you're now terrified of risk-taking and all this kind of stuff and again it's like unraveling it all isn't it you know
0: um we're only human it's such a good point you know kate because i think um because i hate outdoor play um And it's not because I don't like the outdoors. It's exactly that. It is exhausting to look after children in an outdoor space. You've got to be more vigilant to accidents and you've got to make sure that you're not seen to be looking as though you're huddled in your staff group because you'll get accused of being, you know, supervising rather than interacting. And you know, the thing that used to exhaust me in a 10 hour day is that moment when you were like, I've got to get 30 coats on I've got to get them from upstairs to the downstairs back door, I've got to get them outside, I've got to do head count, I've got to get the wellies on because it's raining, they're then all taking the coats off because they're too hot outside, I've now then got to match up the coats with the child and make sure that they're not too chilly, I've then got to make sure that no one's fallen off climbing apparatus, I've then got to look at where the, and it was the, it wasn't that you were, it wasn't that I was against play outdoors and the benefits, it was, operationally and logistically it exhausted me and I thought it's better to stay inside and have a cup of tea and be warm um or to do classroom based activities and you do sometimes I think this is another problem educators are, are sometimes criticized for being lazy but it's like they're not being lazy they're tired like I remember doing um I think you've said it before Kate so I I opted for the um they say it's the 40-hour week over four days with one day off, so you're doing yeah. the 10-hour. Yeah. Um, And then we'd have weeks where they'd be like, oh, we have overtime. Wages aren't good in the early years, so if you can get an extra day's pay, so you'd be doing 50-hour, 50 55-hour weeks. Ah, oh, you, you just run out. You just run out of steam. It is just, it's just too much. And I think rather than all these negative words we hear about practitioners, and, and you know, coming back to, I know you've talked about it before, Kate. When you are working your backside off to support young children, you're trying to get your energies and then somebody comes along and calls you a mood hoover or a negative Nancy or whatever the other ones are. It's like, are you having a giraffe? Are you joking? Like saying that to somebody when they are tired and exhausted and working that amount of hours, it just is not helpful to use those kind of terms or to... To reject that negativity and and to criticize sometimes it's about seeing oh i can see that you're really tired so i think the way that we would reframe our language with young children you know they're not naughty they're tired or they're um they've got an unmet need why don't we have that with adults and say we have adults working in our sector with unmet needs and that's what we need to address and not just practitioners the management have unmet needs as well because they are often dealing with you know at the moment they're dealing with policy changes and having to run nurseries amidst the pandemic so it's just a pain in the ass basically is the um, is the, the summary of that <laughs> it is well listen to it and making me think that actually sometimes our
1: environments and our routines and our everyday life in our settings we are we're not only setting ourselves up to fail but we set children up to fail we plan sometimes I know things are, are, are changing and I'm not working in a setting now, but, you know, circle times that last half an hour with two and three year old children that just, you know, it's impossible, it's an impossibility for them to sit still that long routines, lunch times, lots of parts of the children's day are very stressful. And if they're stressful for children, they're very stressful for staff. So, it, you know, what are we, how, what can we look at? How can we adjust, you know, if things are not working you know, again, it goes back to kind of you know, it's our ethos of you know, why are we doing what we're doing? Who are we doing it for? Um, you know, who? You know, are the children really get, getting benefit from this situation? And like, you know, meal times can be just the most stressful time of the day. You just you just described, um, you know, getting children outside, but trying to feed twenty four two year olds who like to get it from the table, and then you've got to feed them, wipe all of their little tiny faces and hands. Um, and then clean the room up and put them down for a sleep straight after. I mean, that is just still now, just it's exhausting. It
0: is like a full on stressful little busy part of the day. And, and then I think somebody, um, walks in and tells you that you're not encouraging independence because you wiped the hand yeah. you know, for God's sake. Like, yeah, yeah, I know I need to be encouraging independence, but, you know, there's 26 routines that I've got an idea to. Because like coming back yeah. to the circle time as well, I always criticize people's circle times and it's me projecting because I was a half an hour circle time person. And if somebody said to me, why did you do that half an hour? Because if I can get them to sit still for as long as I can while someone's cleaning up after lunch. Yes. So yes, it's not right. It's not the best pedagogy. It's not the greatest teaching, but we've got to choose our battles with that surely. Sorry, I totally interrupted you there, Kate, but I thought they don't get that out. But um, yeah, it's, it's sometimes I think it's that we shouldn't always assume the decision-making of a practitioner is because they can't be asked or because um, they don't care. It's because they're just trying to manage a lot of competing priorities in the day. Um, and they're trying to look after themselves as well, trying to give yourself, you know, I, I remember as a practitioner thinking what can I do to give myself an easier life? And I would choose me battles. I'll do a really great in play-based, you know, setup in the afternoon, but I might need to do a bit of a kind of a conveyor belt lunchtime. Um, and I think it's, it's acknowledging that that does have to happen in the current sector that we work in, unless you are in a bit more of a luxurious position and you do have emotionally intelligent leadership and management.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that's the key thing there, isn't it? It's something that I've talked about a lot after listening. Um, you know and reading Mark Brackett's book on permission to feel um that you know if we want to support children you know to be to be able to regulate their own emotions then as caregivers we need to be able to do that for ourselves and yet we we don't encourage that we still encourage practitioners to turn up and leave their problems at the door um you know it's about um Getting comfortable, having uncomfortable conversations. So holding those spaces where we can truly talk about how we feel so we can adapt routines, lunch breaks, think about how we rest, feed ourselves, take care of ourselves as caregivers, um, rather than waiting till the end of the day, waiting for the weekend, because You know, I can, I can remember waiting just to wait to get to Friday to rest to take care of myself. But actually, by the time I'd got to Friday, I was so frazzled, I was so depleted, I couldn't do anything other than just sleep. And, you know, not particularly take care of myself very well. So you know, when we talk about having well being Wednesdays or midweek check ins, it's check ins like, actually, what are my thoughts? You know, am I having unhelpful or negative thoughts? You know, what is my mindset? Um, You know, physically, how am I feeling? Mentally, how am I feeling? How can I adjust my week rather than waiting until the weekend or a day off or a weekend off to rest and take care of myself? Because all I need to do then is just, I'm in crisis mode, crisis take care of myself mode. So, yeah, so yeah I think, you know, it's a really complex subject, isn't it? And I think that, um, you know, when we record the second part of this podcast, we'll be looking at maybe further tips and tools and information and answering further questions with people on how we can address compassion fatigue and how we can really like take better care of ourselves and the people that we work with, our early
0: years family. Yeah, and because um, I think it's one of those we were we were WhatsApp and we we were like okay this is not going to be a one a one episode um, and so today we just wanted to kind of bring some of those things to the surface and um, we're going to be doing a newsletter that actually links to some ways to um, approach. Um, compassion fatigue and um, how to kind of address it how to identify and then address it um, I think just a kind of a bit of a hopeful end to this um, episode um this first part of the compassion fatigue episode is the thing that I read is that Sometimes when something feels big, such as the experience of stress, we can think that it needs a big, um, a big solution or we need to do something that is kind of overhauls our stress, but actually it's about um, small intentional acts to get your way out of it. And recognising that not everything will be within your own control. So you can't always change your manager or you can't change the children or you can't change the colleague um, or your own experiences, particularly those that have passed. But you can do very small intentional acts. And that that has really helped me. And because I think something that we also spoke about, Kate, over the weekend is that some of the issue with... um, with wellness discussions and self-care is that we often think of those more privileged versions of self-care you know it's it's all well and good saying to somebody go and get some therapy or go along to a yoga class those things cost money and so we need to look at those um organic things that you can do every day that might only be five minutes or they might be just a change in behavior or mindset and um, but that they they aren't exclusionary and particularly because we exist in a sector that doesn't necessarily have um financial privilege, for example. Um, and so just being culturally aware with that. And I just wanted to kind of, um, at the end of this podcast, um, let you guys know one of the things that I'm reading and Kate's gonna share one of her recommendations. Um, but I bought a book, um, Called Culturally Responsive Self-Care Practices for Early Childhood Educators. And it is a phenomenal book. So it might be something that you add to your Amazon wish list or to your CPD library within your nursery. Um, and it just gives a really good description of different experiences of early educators but acknowledging that wellness um, or the, the kind of commercial aspect of wellness it can be very, very difficult to, to strive for and to achieve. And so it's a much more kind of organic approach to how we we address some of those things. Um, and we are going to share some other links, but you were talking earlier on, Kate, about something that really resonated with you, um, something that you listened to or read, the, um, something about resentment. Do you remember? Oh, I can't, I can't remember. That's my my dyslexic
1: brain and my short-term memory um, about resentment. I can't <laughs>
0: remember it, Don't worry, it'll come. But is there anything that you've, because I know we've been reading a lot of, about it. Is there anything like that springs to mind that you would like to recommend? Didn't you say there was a podcast? Oh. On? Yeah, so I'd um,
1: discovered there was um, a book actually specifically around burnout for childhood educators, um, which was published in twenty nineteen, which I hadn't, uh, which I didn't know about. So I have um, ordered that. Um, and then there was a podcast and an interview on a website called Hi Mama. Um, and it was all around burnout and different tips and things that people could do. And, you know, very similar to a lot of the conversation that we were having. I mean, I know that these practitioners were based in Australia. So, again, reassuring in some way comforting that actually this is something that is worldwide you know this focus of 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 well-being and how we can take kind of better care of ourselves but it's interesting you know we're so much more comfortable talking about stress than we are talking about kind of our mental health so we we feel like stress has got nothing to do with mental health so we'll talk a lot about how how stressful our job roles are um sometimes you know we can have this kind of narrative in our mind that um we're t- because we're so busy that actually things that we have enjoyed that give us um you know that boost our well-being like a- an example you know obviously for anyone that that follows me on social media will know I've got two little dogs when I was working in, you know as my role you know in the school I'd got to a point where I just was too busy to walk the dogs I'd got to a point where it was a- it was annoying for me i couldn't fit it into my day i didn't want to get wet frizzy hair before i went to work i i i, I it was like any little thing that just wasn't part of you know that i had to squeeze into the day i t- like felt resentful about so walking the dogs it wasn't a joy it wasn't something that replenished me it was a chore like and it happened to me last week cooking um i've been cooking for the family a lot more which i've mentioned and I actually found it quite cathartic. It's something that I'm enjoying. I might have a little dance around the kitchen while I'm doing it, but because I had a really busy week last week, I went into this mindset of chopping up the carrots, bang, bang, like I've got a cook for everyone and I've been working all day too. And then this little voice was like, hold on a sec, where are you going with this thought process? This isn't true like this isn't a fact you enjoy cooking you enjoy you're going to enjoy this fancy little recipe that you're cooking now Um, and sometimes it is those simple things, as you just said, like walking the dogs like cooking a meal. For your family, that might be really like nutritious and good for you, but also just sitting and having that chat with people. It is those little everyday things, those little small things that we do that don't cost lots of money that are essential for our well being. And we've become too tired, too busy, too worn down to appreciate them. So it's like noticing, hold on, like we've said before, what do I need every day to feel good? What is something I need for me? And walking my dogs fresh air is a big part of that. I no longer resent it or,
0: you know, feel too busy to do it. And I think just to kind of conclude on that as well, what I've noticed, particularly in a pandemic, which I shouldn't feel guilt and shame for, but I always see see myself on a tally chart of how many times I'm negative or share a negative um, thought with another person and then kind of go, oh, I'm going to be, when they ask me how I am today, I'm going to say I'm fine because I don't want them to think I'm a really negative person, but actually get rid of your tally chart. It's okay to admit your feelings and that there is um, a spectrum of feelings and, um, don't believe in what you think, similar to what you often say, Kate, is that I know if I send Kate a message and say, I'm really struggling today, she doesn't tick off a big evil tally chart going, well, Kerry's been stressed for five days, so she's not really that fun to hang around with. Um, <laughs> our emotions are not, we're not beholden to people. It's okay to say, I'm. it's a pandemic, I'm having a hard time. Um, and those who don't stick around with that, weren't worth having around in the first place. And what you will find is most people will just feel more connected to you because because. because you are showing and that was another thing that I'd read about compassion fatigue is finding your authentic self is what you need to get back to when that experience happens because it's okay it's okay to 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 kind of show those things so um, I hope today has been helpful and it has given you a bit of, um, you know, I'm I'm by your side,ness. You're not alone in this. We all have it. Um, and as a sector, I think that we are bloody brilliant, as I always say. Um, and we've just got to look after each other. So thank you, Kate. That was a really um, that was a really interesting discussion. And I'm really excited to record another episode on this topic. I'm really looking about those sustainable strategies. Um, and then we've got really exciting plans for the podcast going forward. Um, and this. Um, episode will be complemented with a newsletter with lots of additional links because um, we are we're little bookworms we're nerds we love reading listening and watching we've also got some very exciting guests coming up um, and if you want to be part of the earliest conversation like we said at the beginning of the podcast do contact us we want to hear your voice so thanks very much and have a lovely day Kate